0: Coming up on Harvard Chan this week in health, seafood and sustainability.
1: We're telling the oceans only what we are willing to eat, rather than asking of them what they're able to provide. And so we have set up an inherently unsustainable relationship with the ocean.
0: In this week's episode, chef and author Barton Siever explains why changing how we think about seafood and what we eat can have significant benefits for our health and the environment. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, April 6th, 2017. I'm Noah Levitt. And
2: I'm Amy Montemiro.
0: Amy, the average American eats about fifteen and a half pounds of seafood each year. Now that's a total that's dwarfed by our annual consumption of poultry, about 106 pounds, beef about 54 pounds, and pork about 50 pounds per year.
2: And Barton Seaver is working hard to reverse that trend. He's a chef, author, and director of the Healthy and Sustainable Food Program at the Center for Health and the Global Environment here at the Harvard Chan School.
0: This week, we're bringing you part one of our interview with Seaver, who believes that we should be eating more seafood and vegetables and less beef, poultry, and pork.
2: Doing so, says Seaver, will have significant benefits not just for our health, but also for the health of the planet. And it's not simply a matter of buying more cod and haddock the next time you're at the supermarket.
0: Seaver says we need to change how we think about seafood and what we're willing to eat. In part one of our conversation, Seaver gives us an overview of the seafood industry in the United States and explains why, in his words, seafood has become an irrational economy. Take a listen. So I wanted to start just kind of broadly, sustainability, it's a word we hear often. And so when we're talking kind of in the context of seafood, what does it mean to shop, cook, eat fish sustainably?
1: Uh, One of the hardest questions I ever get asked is, what what does sustainability mean? Uh, And it's not that I don't have an answer. Uh, It's that I don't have your answer. Uh, And I think this is one of the, the problems in terms of sort of expounding upon sustainability and getting this out into the mainstream is that there's so many facets to it, whether it's the civic virtues and values of, of, of a local economy uh, and eating seasonally, whether it's about a broad global environmental impacts and implications. Uh, there's so many different ways to look at it. Uh, and so a one-size-fits-all answer is really hard because we're talking about very, very intimate personal decisions that people are making. I mean this is dinner here, and uh dinner is already fraught enough with with complication and you know your your kids will eat this, but not that and whatever and then you throw on sustainability It can be very tough, so uh, you know i I think that sustainability is ultimately uh I best define it by the action of being a good neighbor uh if we're simply looking out for each other, if we're being empathetic, then by and large, the result of our actions is, uh, is not negative. And, um, and I, I always like to sort of leave people with that because it, it's simple and it feels good and it's something we should be doing anyway.
0: So you kind of touched on there that that it is a kind of a very personal thing. So for you, how did you kind of find your way working to this? Because I know you kind of, your background is as a chef. So how did you find your way into working on this issue?
1: Well, as a chef, I wanted to put forth the best plate of food that I possibly could. And so, of course, I was buying the best ingredients that I could find. And well, that happened to be the squash that was picked two hours ago rather than the one two weeks ago. Um, Just plain and simple. And You know, as chefs, we also have a responsibility to sustain those who come through our front door. Uh, In fact, we're legally bound to, you know, serve them wholesome food. Uh, I began to realize that I had an equal responsibility to sustain the people who were coming to the back door, the people who were delivering the fruits and vegetables, the meats, the produce, whatever it was that sustained me. I couldn't do anything without them. And so I began to really look at, at the systems and my role in that system. And as it applied to seafood specifically, that was sort of my passion for cooking. It's the most interesting of ingredients, just in terms of the range of palate and taste and colors. Um, you know, this is just about the time, this is uh sort of late nineties and you know this is when bluefin tuna was, was, you know, being eradicated. Chilean sea bass had just come on the scene but it was being decimated, orange roughy had been nearly fished to extinction, swordfish were under major threat. And so these these ideas were in the fore at that time, and I began to realize that, wow, the decisions I make as a chef, uh they can, they can really hurt the environment. And furthermore, looking at sort of a, a macro scale, the decisions that chefs make, that food producers make, can have very, very negative impacts on people's health. I mean, if you look at the American diet, it's hurting the planet very much, and it's also hurting Americans very much. But I didn't look at that with, with any sense of negativity or pessimism. I, in fact, th- saw that and said, huh, if I can make sick and destroy by the choices I make for dinner, that's awesome. Because by that same token, I can heal and I can restore by those very same decisions. And so I began to look at not reducing the negative, but increasing the positive and really looking at um, you know, how we can maximize the environment's impact on us.
0: As a chef, you're very close to the, the food system, the supply system. You know where the squash comes from, the fish comes from. But I guess from the flip side, are... are do consumers have a harder time understanding that, like knowing where the food on their plate comes from? And then what is you like, what can you do as a chef or just kind of in general do to combat that so people understand kind of what's at play?
1: Well, I think that's been the mark of, or uh, the building block of the success of farm markets and and so many things, because you just, you put the name on the farm, you, you see the dirt under the Excuse me. The soil uh, under the farmer's fingernails, as you know, you shake hands, and th- there's a very visceral uh, engagement with it. Even if you're in the store at at Stop and Shop, or you know, this is not elitism. This isn't fancy. But even if there's just something relating it to a place, huh, okay, that's nice. Uh, but the global food system is largely based on a purposeful obfuscation of source. Uh, when you're talking about a commodity. Uh, the specter of rarity uh, is, is what kind of keeps the value up in, of seafood in many ways. Uh, but also wheat is wheat, is wheat, is wheat, whether it's coming from the Russian tundra or wherever. Uh, and so a lot of things just lose identity by their very existence in many ways. Uh, and so for consumers, yes, it's absolutely uh, nearly impossible to to really have a sense of the entire complex matrix by which food comes to our plates.
0: So I was looking at one of your previous interviews and you kind of mentioned that the seafood industry in some sense has, for years, has kind of gotten like a bad rap, so to speak, for being unsustainable. And so I guess where did did that come from? And I guess what is the seafood industry actually doing well when it comes to being sustainable and promoting sustainability?
1: The seafood industry, I, I think, is an easy target in many ways, uh, and I'm not making excuses for bad actors uh, or the radical depletion that we have seen of our global fisheries. Uh, I'm not making excuses for that, it's happened. The problem is though, is that it all the blame falls on the fishermen. Well, if overfishing is the problem, we, shouldn't we tell the person fishing to stop fishing? Like, well, uh, I think there's a broader community here. We've been buying that fish. We've demanded that fish. We have in many cases wasted that fish. Uh, Unwanted bycatch that goes dead and dying overboard. Um, Huge swaths of fish like anchovies and capelin that get ground down into fish oils and, and meals to be fed to pigs and chickens and cows and minks and ceiling tiles and moisturizers. We haven't used the ocean for its highest and best pr- what we've taken from the ocean for its highest and best purpose uh, and that's on us as consumers in, in some ways uh, but I think one of the, the, the real issues here is that the decline has been uh, sort of hidden from us uh, and, and therefore the stories that we hear about it uh, are so sensational oh my god ah it's all gone like what do you mean it's all gone it's on sale at shaw's today so there's a a radical disconnect there anyway but uh uh regionalized collapses have been obscured by the advance of global fisheries it's always available somewhere and in america we import 90 percent of the seafood that we eat and so if cod isn't swimming in the waters two miles away anymore, well, <laughs> it's sure on the sale at the market. So it's sort of, um, I think it gets a bad rap because the attention, the, the uh, sort of the vigor which is needed to get people's attention about this is, is so high. Um, and, and it's such a polarizing issue
0: being in New England, we hear a lot about cod depletion and issues around that. I mean, so is it is it a matter of we can reverse the depletion that's already happened, or we just need to look elsewhere at different products?
1: I think the biggest sin that we have levied, uh, that we have sort of uh, placed upon the ocean, uh, is that we have created an incredibly irrational economy. Uh, you know, right here in the in the Gulf of Maine, in New England, uh, cod, cod was king, you know, it sits above the, the New England State House, the gilded effigy of the sacred cod. Uh, but along with cod, we catch haddock and pollock and hake and monk and skate and wolf and dog and ling and ray and eel and pout and perch and flounder. I mean, I could go on. There's 35 different species in the ground fish fishery. And for centuries, cod was the only one that was worth anything. And so all of this bounty was just wasted. Uh, you know, right now we, we lament the, the fate and, and the extinction of the New England fishermen because there's no more cod. Well, actually, right now there is 24 times the biomass that dogfish, 24 times the biomass currently in the Gulf of Maine than there is cod. And fishermen can't get more than 12 cents a pound for dogfish. What's wrong with dogfish? What? You don't want to eat the dogfish? Well, you don't have a problem eating catfish. What's wrong? You know? I don't see a difference. Um, And when we place these irrational economies on on fishermen, we are placing, we're telling the oceans only what we are willing to eat, rather than asking of them what they're able to provide. And so we have set up, just economically, an inherently unsustainable relationship with the ocean. you just cannot you know basically put a monoculture economy on an incredibly diverse ecosystem and not expect to have uh, ramifications.
0: It's interesting you mentioned that because I kind of saw that in action this weekend. I just bought dogfish treats for my dog, so they thought of his dog treats, and it's got scaping of the supermarket for eight ninety nine a pound. Whereas the cod is, you know, fourteen or $15.99 a pound, so that's kind of my way of segueing into, I guess, what like what are some of the barriers to getting more people to eat skate wing, to get people to be open to eating dogfish or these other kinds of species of fish that are so bountiful, and i not think of them as only treats for the dog.
1: Some of this is, is very much rooted in the in our cultural history, uh, you know, it was the barren, rocky shores of New England was not what called the, you know, the immigrants to to my, you know, to come here, uh, it it was the incredibly fertile waters. It was the cod. Uh, It was our first industry. It it provided for us the first stepping stone towards independence in terms of, you know, accumulation of wealth. But, you know, in just an odd little twist of world history, Um, you know, we were largely colonized by the English, and they were tended to be at war with the Catholics for a long time, hundreds of years, basically, and uh, fish was seen as a food of penance, as part of the Catholic diet, and there was already sort of a bias against seafood. Governor William Bradford, the first uh, governor of the Plymouth Colony, uh, wrote plaintively, constantly, back to England, saying, you know, know, when the second wave of pilgrims arrived, and, and, you know, I had to apologize for the best I could offer thee was... A lobster and a piece of, of striped bass and a cup of fair spring water. You know, uh, you know. Rest thee a while and have faith, God will one day provide for thee better fare. I mean, literally, I've just, like, from the first meal, it's like, ah, I gotta eat seafood, come on. And then you have you know, manifest destiny and sort of this endless, you know, America had an ocean of a different sort, you know, an ocean of, of, of fertile soil. And you know, meat has always been an aspirational product, and so I think uh, we've sort of seafood has somewhat been beneath our aspiration in many ways. Uh, You know, meat consumption tops out at two hundred seventy-five pounds in our history, and seafood's topped out at just over sixteen pounds per person per year. So there is this sort of cultural bias. There's also um, this seafood has always been seen as different. It's sold in a different section. We go in the in the store saying, ah, what am I gonna have for dinner tonight? All right, what's the protein gonna be? Well, you go to the meat case, but seafood's over there. It's in a different section. So automatically, it's literally physically separated from the decision process. Uh, it is highly perishable, and there have been unscrupulous, you know, a lot of unscrupulous uh, uh, happenings where you know, it, people get bad fish. And, um, and so there's just a trepidation, there's a separation, and there's a physical segregation. Um, and there's also just a, sort of a lack of, of cultural um, sort of fluency in seafood, especially once you, once you start heading inland.
0: That was part one of our interview with Barton Siever on seafood and sustainability. Coming up in
2: part two next week, The Future of Seafood.
0: This is our next internet, almost.
1: Just the amount of opportunity that we have, the amount of food that we can produce in the oceans is enough to assuage even the most anxious, pessimistic person about, oh my God, how are we gonna feed the planet? It's like, well, how about we look to the 70% of the planet, the ocean, that we're currently not really even looking to utilize.
2: From aquaculture to sea greens, how the oceans can help feed the world.
0: Also, Siever shares tips for you, the consumers. What should you do if you want to try some of the other species of fish mentioned in this episode? Plus, Seaver's advice for how you can make healthy and sustainable choices when you head to the grocery store.
2: That's all coming up next week. But in the meantime, you can listen to this podcast anytime at soundcloud.com slash
0: Health. Or subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.